Hi, this is Graham Brown and welcome to the Excel Podcast. The Excel Podcast is a platform for the bigger conversations about leadership in the 2020s. Who's leading? How are they leading? And what stories do they have to share? Through the stories of leaders, we'll address the big challenges of our times from the era of AI to the Asian century to nurturing a new generation of entrepreneurs. If you're enjoying these conversations, subscribe to the podcast at xlpodcast.org. Now, one of the big issues that the world and its leaders has to contend with in the 2020s is the rise of the Asian century. We all know about the rise of China, but a key component in this story is Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia, a region of vast opportunity and challenges. 600 million people, one of the world's richest economies in Singapore, and one of its poorest in Laos. Add to that the geography of nearly 20,000 islands, a dozen languages, and a myriad of consumer segments. You have what is on paper a massive logistical undertaking. Undeterred by these challenges, Alibaba, Lazada, Amazon are all doubling down on the region. That's why my next guest on the XL podcast is very much at the front line of Asia's digital transformation. Bernard Hoare, the CEO of Hatio, a digital warehousing software platform developed in Korea but housed in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, is on a mission to help Asia's mom and pop stores, small businesses, take their logistics logistics digital and service Asia's middle class. And herein lies the challenge we're going to discuss in today's podcast episode. How do you service the world's fastest growing middle class? How do you create world-class logistics supply chains in markets which are highly fragmented and geographically diverse? And how do you sell digital warehousing solutions to analog warehouse managers? Find out in this episode of the Excel Podcast. Everybody, this is Graham Brown. This is the XL Podcast. We're talking to leaders in their own industries, in their own domains, who are making change for the better business, technology, and society. On today's show, I'm joined by Bernard Hoare, the CEO of Hatio. He's going to tell us about the Asian market, particularly with a view to understanding just how big it's become in the logistics, supply chain, and warehousing space. Bernard, welcome to the show. Hi, Graham. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you here. So we're both in Asia. We just know how big this place has become in recent years. Obviously, oh, yeah. we've mm -hmm. known the Asian story for a long time. People have been talking about the rise of Asia. But where we are right now, obviously, we've crossed a few milestone lines in the sand, if you like. We've crossed, for example, Asia doing more business with itself now than the rest of the world. And we have the rise of Asian middle classes. And you have, on top of that, the growth in retail platforms like Alibaba, Lazada, and so on across Asia. This is all combining to create a logistics market, which is potentially going to be one of the biggest in the world in time. What's going on in Asia at the moment? What are the key trends that we can talk about before we dive into the data on logistics in Asia, what are the big macro trends burning? Well, I think right now, um, Asia being a very huge market and, and also a very fast-growing market, um, especially specifically for the supply chain and the logistics uh, space. And uh, over and beyond, I think what we have really seen, especially over the last two years, you know, I, I just want to start with, you know, 2020, right? 
was a year of massive, unprecedented disruption. And, you know, even saying that, it feels like an understatement, right? So and I think you and I know what, what happens, right? I mean, COVID-19, you know, I was telling myself not to use COVID-19 word uh, in this podcast, but, but then it's again, you, you, can't, you, you just say yeah, it's done, right? It's, this is it. And see, so this COVID-19 has fundamentally changed the world, right? I think like, neither people like you or me, no one was prepared for it, right? Not for its arrival, definitely not for its impact. We do not know what the hell this was. And not especially right now, when is this going to end? Or is this actually never going to end you know, for its duration? So now I think with the widespread distribution of the vaccine on a way, I think the world, even in, in, in Asia, uh, we're faced with a new phase of disruption, right? Adjusting, you know, and everybody's talking about adjusting to a new normal. And, and, I, and I think I want to say this, that I think it's not really exactly like the new normal, but we, we all have to be ready for the next normal, right? And I think in Asia, what we're really looking at in terms of the supply chain and the logistics industry, of course, you have the likes of Alibaba, you know, Lazada and, and, and so on. However, if you, if you really look at it, um, there's actually more and more opportunity and space for local players within the, the Asian context. And I like to specifically touch and zoom it down on Southeast Asia, right? You know, Southeast Asia alone is, is a 55 billion US dollar market for logistics itself, right? And um, you have the likes of uh, TalkPad, Zilingo, Sendo in Vietnam. So we've been observing uh, key trends in terms of movement, movement of goods. I think one very that I like to really, really uh, talk, talk about uh, is basically direct to consumer, right? The question, the big question of, is there still a need for the middleman, right? Consumers are rising expectations. And this has opened up. This has truly, truly opened up a whole spectrum for fulfillment and logistics solutions, especially for the e-commerce and omni-channel sales, right? The second one is last mile delivery. I think over the last four to five years, there's been truly a, a remarkable influx of last mile delivery players, right? Of course, if you go to Indonesia or anywhere in Southeast Asia, you will always see the green color guys on the motorbikes, which is the Grab guys. And then there's also the other green, which is the Gojeks, right? And then somewhere along the line, there's these pink color guys, the, the, the Panda guys, right? So, and I think that the, with the rise of direct-to-consumer model right now, last mile delivery is, is being reinvented, right? It's, it's being reimagined. It's interesting. You know, you have the likes of Ninja Van, who is on last mile and also going to fulfillment, Box24, Popbox, those guys. And if you were to look at it on a more technology perspective, I mean, it was just not long ago, you know, not too long ago, you know, uh, people were just talking about drone deliveries, right? And, you know, probably three, four years ago, when you talk about drone deliveries, you're all just laughing off and say, oh, well, you know. But if you look at it today, even Tony Fernandez, right, is putting a bat there, you know, in terms of drone delivery. On, and I think drone deliveries is perhaps on the horizon as well. Yeah. So these are a couple of things that we're probably looking at. And of course, if we're to... Uh, narrow it further down, um, you, we will be looking at the digitization of uh, traditional trade stores. And this is very, very interesting. Uh, all the mom and pops, brick and mortar stores out there and how they are basically either they want to, they feel the need to, to digitize or they're forced to digitize. And it's all due to the buying behaviors and, and the demand of, of, of the consumers, right? So well, you've got these three yeah. factors, haven't you? You have mm -hmm. on the one hand the Asian consumer. So you have by the end of 2030, 
more Asian middle class than anywhere else in the world. So there's more middle class living in Asia than anywhere else in the world by the end of this decade. So you have that and they're buying, they're buying cars online. They're buying durians from Malaysia yeah. and Thailand yeah. and exporting them to different countries. And then they've got the mom and pops retailers who are going online. So you have all of that. You have COVID that has forced people to rethink. It's paused a lot of economic activity and people have rethought everything. Food delivery is a good example, last mile. And then you have this other area, which is Asia has very fragmented e-commerce and logistics supply chains, doesn't it? That you look at it geographically, Indonesia has how many thousand islands? Asia, Southeast Asia has how many different countries, different regions, different climates, geographies, etc. So you have all of this coming together. Now you'd look at that and think, well, actually that's the recipe for disaster because it's <laughs> chaos. But yeah. somehow out of this, and I bring up the McKinsey data recently published, it says that if you look at e-commerce logistics, Asia Pacific, so not just Southeast Asia, but Asia Pacific accounts for 57% yeah. of global growth in the post-pandemic period predicted. So it's going to be up to 25, 57% of all logistics market growth for e-commerce will be in Asia. That's phenomenal as a figure. What's driving that? What's happening? Is, is the big bulk of that the mom and pops? Or what are you seeing on the ground? Absolutely. Well, I think the, the thing that's been changing or rather the, the transformation here is because if you look at it geographically in countries like Indonesia, Philippines, even Vietnam, and of course, um, the other parts of Asia as well, it's like, in, okay, let's take Indonesia, for example, right? There's so many islands, right? Philippines, so many provinces, and the, the culture really, people operates and behaves in very, very different manner, right? Uh, people buying behaviors are so, so also different, right? And I think the need to basically now say that, you know, if I buy something today and I want it the next day or the same day delivery, uh, it's really driving the, the e-commerce growth. Take for example, then you can see the likes of, and that's how the likes of people like Alibaba moved into creating logistics hubs across these Asian countries, bringing the products from the rest of the world, especially China, closer to their consumers um, across the Asian market as well. And I think this really drives the growth of, of the e-commerce logistics market um, in Asia Pacific. Yeah. Mm. If you take somewhere like Indonesia, I don't I think it's 12,000 islands or something like that. How do you yeah. create an experience where you have on one hand, or how do you manage the experience? So on the one hand, customers increasingly aware of next day delivery, and yet geographically, you have a real headache. How do you manage that? Because is it physically possible? That I know, for example, with Lazada here in Southeast Asia, they still don't have next day delivery like Amazon would in other countries. It seems like there's still a long way to go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think next day delivery will continue to be a code that every seller, every shipper is trying to crack, right? At the same time, I'm also hearing from some of the logistics, the industry guys, right? And there are people who are saying, you know, this whole next day delivery thing or this whole uh, same day delivery thing is not going to work, right? It's just a myth. You know, it's just a, it's just a fad. Here well, in Asia, well, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially here in Asia. I mean, let's, let's just take a look at it, right? For example, um, in Indonesia, right? If you look at the buyers, the consumers that, that's buying off e-commerce, uh, a lot of these guys, and, and you can see that most of them, big market of this, a big chunk of this market, basically in the urban, suburban areas, right? And how, so the question becomes, how do you get 
the goods closer to these guys in the urban area, considering parameters of facts that real estate costs in urban areas are high, right? How do you set up a logistics hub in an urban area? This is what, one of it, right? And then you look at traffic, you look at the oil prices, right? There's so many parameters. But let's just zoom down. And if you look at, if you imagine a, a network distribution, right? And I think this could probably drive it. And I, I do see traditional, in fact, I do see traditional third-party logistics starting to go into that game, which is to create dark stores. Right to be to create small smaller hubs across urban areas, and they're basically taking opportunity of the current situation of the economic, where you know some retail has to close down, so there's there's unused spaces, right? So these guys are basically moving in and are taking over these uh, retail spaces, unused retail spaces within the urban areas, and establishing their hubs, which we call it the dark stores, right, all over. And this is where now, and then that's where, once they have this, the next thing that comes into mind then becomes the technology part of it, right? So now you have, you not only run a big warehouse, you basically decentralize the big warehouse and now you go into like 10 or 20 other small little dark stores out everywhere, right? And now how do you connect this? So this is where I think technology then comes into play again, right? And the need to, to digitize, hence. Right? Tell us about these dark stores. Seems interesting. Who's actually running them and where are they and what do they look like? So basically, right now, from my own personal experience as well, uh, is that I've actually a couple of clients who is basically, uh, we do see our clients moving into that direction. They've created, so that the whole idea is that they, these are guys that used to run maybe 200,000, 300,000, or even half a million square feet of space, right? But this space is basically either very near to the port or is uh, on the suburban areas, right? So moving goods to the end consumer is a very long journey. You know, quote unquote, it's a long journey, right? You have to go through a few phase before it reach there. So right now, what, what, what we're seeing of our trend is that these guys, these, these players are now basically taking over these unused retail spaces within the urban area. For example, it can be a 3,000 to 4,000 square feet space area within a commercial lot right down in Klang Valley. And they, they basically turn the entire thing. All they need is basically a high ceiling probably. Then they turn the entire thing without a, f- a shop front and they turn the entire thing into a smaller warehouse, right? And that becomes a dark store. So now they can do a lot of forecasting. So now imagine uh, like what I mentioned earlier. They basically decentralized a half a million square feet warehouse into 25,000 square feet warehouse everywhere, right? Small little dark stores. And they forecast their goods. They could forecast like, what is the buying behavior of the consumers, not only within a bigger market, but within a community right now, right? Uh, is this more of a, for example, if they look at it from, is this a Malay community or this a Chinese community, festive season, you know, uh, and stuff like that. So in, in simple words, in short, these traditional 3PL guys are also in the race to also crack the code of same-day delivery. And, and I do see this happening right now, right? There are people, it's already like, if Nike launch a new shoe today and uh, you wake up at nine o'clock in the morning, you be the first one to get a new shoe, uh, buy it over the e-commerce and you're probably wearing it out for lunch because the dark store is probably just within that, that area itself, right? So, yeah. But, but they but would have still to have pretty good data. I mean, we'll come on to that in a minute. Data and forecasting That's to know. Right. That's because right. Because otherwise, right. it would be impossible to you know, manage their inventory, right? Manage yeah, their yeah. 
the stock. Okay. So how does that compare? I mean, I'm not a, a logistics expert to, for example, the US, which has a very mature logistics market. Mm-hmm. Is it much more centralized there? More sort of hub and spoke? How does it work by comparison? Do they have dark stores equivalents? Of oh, them? yeah. 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 A dark store is not a new, it's not a new invention per se. And I think dark stores, uh, from what I understand, dark stores happens pretty well in a market like the US, which is a much more mature market, right? And uh, in fact, not only dark stores is happening in the US, if you look at the US, uh, there's also micro fulfillment centers, the MFCs that is uh, basically sprouting everywhere. Uh, those guys from Fabric, the technology company, and it's the stuff that these guys are doing amazing, right? So to give you a rough idea, is basically you ordering your grocery items and there is, so imagine the same 5,000 square feet space and it's basically uh, filled with grocery items. And when you click an order, it's basically those small little robots, automated guided vehicles that does all the picking and there's only humans packing and that's it out from the door. So it really is, you know, if you're out of a ketchup, you order a ketchup and the ketchup gets on the front door in the next one hour. You know, all you can do. Um, and I think there's also, uh, I've recently read, there's also a lot of a curbside pickup that they're doing as well. So, and but then again, of course, technology is one part of it because technology also drives the cost, right? But the other thing also is the culture of uh, the people. Uh, the culture of the people uh, which drives the buying behavior and also the, the, the consumer behavior of how do I shop for groceries, especially, right? In this case, uh, how, the, how the change of the behavior in shopping for groceries, right? So it's no more going into a big Tesco, you know, or going a big Walmart kind of thing. And then, and then, and then you walk in there and then you can take a trolley, the, the, the trolley, then you slowly stroll the whole big square feet space, right? So now they've basically compressed that whole thing, the space size and the space that you move in is only for fresh goods. And all the dried goods is basically on the screen. So you, you hit it on the screen, you can still go for it. And then you go and pick up all your fresh goods, vegetables, fish, and, and, and chicken. And then as you go out, your fresh, your those canned foods and you know those dried goods will be delivered right to your car. And it's you just hybrid. pay for everything. It's hybrid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So a lot of this stuff is happening right now. And it's not to say that it's, it's so, so new, like it's new, new this year. It's just that I think when it's a pandemic like that and everybody is forced to to stay home or to not go out that often, you know, the whole fear of getting infected and all that. And and I think this this really drives the, and, and forcefully push the change in that consumer behavior. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. How has that really affected Asia's position in, in logistics? We've talked about obviously the growth of logistics here locally. Mm-hmm. Are we still behind? Is there a lot of catching up to do? Is there areas in which Asia leads or maybe there's ways because of necessity, they've innovated logistics in Asia to a degree that they wouldn't have in the US, for example. Are there sort of small pockets of innovation out there? Obviously, we know about what's going on in China, like the Hema stores and all those kind of customer experiences around the supply of groceries, for example. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing anything interesting that will give us an insight into the way that Asians are doing something slightly different here? Well, I've always had this uh, personal belief, right, that it is not fair, for lack of a better word, or, or it's not wise, right? Uh, it's not wise to say the US market is leading with, uh, you know, all these micro fulfillment stores. You know, you have robots in a, in, a, in a small little warehouse doing the picking and stuff like that. And just because Southeast Asia is not, or rather Asia is not looking at that yet, okay, that means Asia is losing out or we're a step back. Well, I mean, we can, we can always, it's easy to just put it in that perspective. 
But then again, Asia is unique, right? Asia itself is unique in the sense that, you know, and, and for a long time, Asia has always been in a position of a consumer's market, right? I think this is a good time and this is a good opportunity. And we've been seeing so many things that are, or startups or companies or ways of doing things that the new ways of doing things that has been sprouting out. And it's a good opportunity for Asia to start creating, right? Not necessarily have to copy a micro fulfillment center idea, you know, okay, let's do MFC, you know, but economically it might not make sense <laughs> because if you look at Indonesia, even if you look at Jakarta alone, right, you, you can't probably be, be investing in one micro fulfillment center and then you can only cover a small area. You want to cover a bigger area and then traffic becomes another factor, right? But let's leave that for another another, another time. So I, I do see, and, and I want to just touch on uh, what I mentioned earlier in terms of the digitization of the traditional trade stores, right? So if you look at Indonesia, you, they have things like Warung Pintar, um, Garai Ku, right? These are basically companies that have uh, basically went into micro-retail technology companies, right? These are all micro-retail technology companies. Um, they, they like, for example, like Garai Ku, right? They, Garai Ku elevates uh, the underserved traditional retail stores um, through their mobile tech, right? And the opportunity, right? The, the addressable market of these guys, I mean, Indonesia, right? It's, it's huge, you know? Even in Philippines, uh, you have guys like Grosari.com, right? Who's helping to build the future of all the Sari Sari stores in Philippines. Uh, they've been around, actually, they've been around since uh, 2015 as well. So there are new ways of, you know, innovative uh, ways of doing things, new retail structures. When you look at logistics, so coming back to logistics, we do see that a lot of traditional third-party logistic players now taking a step forward and sort of like embracing, you know, and, and moving into the space of e-commerce fulfillment, right? So previously, uh, it was a very, you know, B2B, pallet in, pallet out, bulk handling. Um, today, we can see that they are actually disrupting their own, within their own operations and moving into the e-commerce fulfillment as well, right? And, and there's just, I think there's just a lot of, there's a huge market and opportunity out there for, for this to happen. Yeah. And how did you get into this market? You from the world of logistics? Okay, so I'm definitely not from the world of logistics. It's a good question though. Uh, I've been asked this question a couple of times, even when we were raising our rounds, right? And, and the investors uh, were asked, how did you get into this, right? What was the backstory of this, right? Are you, are you like the warehouse manager somewhere and then you see all the problems and stuff like that? I think a very interesting way, and I, I want to be humbly putting this out there, but I think it's a very interesting way of looking at this is, you know, and I always compare myself or rather I always liken my story to the Asia story, right? You know, the music guy and when, the, how the a music guy went and take over an airline company. I mean, it was really, a, you know, that opportunity at that point in time, right? So, so I was always from, I mean, my, my backstory is that I was from the communications industry, a lot of innovation, uh, design thinking stuff that we're doing. And uh, of course, we got ourselves into the tech I had the opportunity to go to, to be involved with a technology business. We have our setup down in Vietnam, in Ho Chi Minh City and Kuala Lumpur. And so over the years, we have been looking at a lot of digital transformation, right? So it was moving from building websites to basically transforming uh, the digital ecosystem within a company, right? So 
it was really a family holiday that I took with my family a couple of years back to Korea. We spent a month in Seoul, and that's how I met my now co-founders of of Hatio. And yeah, uh, long story short, they were looking for a new market opportunity to grow out of Seoul. And there I was, the Southeast Asian guy, and um, there was a lot of opportunity within the uh, Korean government helping. Korean businesses to expand out to a new region, and they were looking very strongly at Southeast Asia. So that was how it all started, and that was when we we said, okay, look, they want to leave a comfort zone, and I was looking for a need. Uh, you know, I was open, and I was looking for a, a new uh, space, a new industry to be in as well. So, and I when I looked at it, I remember in the beginning when I look at it and look at logistics, I really do not have much knowledge. But I do see the opportunity of growth of logistics within a Southeast Asian context, right? And especially when we spoke to our partners in Philippines, in in Thailand, in Indonesia, you know, and looking at the geographical map, and and yeah, just a lot of opportunity right there. So so that's how that was how I I got into this this industry. Yeah. So the technology is from Korea. Your partners, your co-founders, are based in Seoul. You're based in. Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, and you're servicing markets across Southeast Asia. That's right. Okay. Yeah. For the listeners, I think there's an important part here about your geographical positioning as well in, in KL. That for those that don't know, it's almost in the middle of Asia. If you were to plumb a line or put a center point in Flights, Asia geographically, yeah. KL is about it. It's about as near as you can get. Singapore, where we are, is a bit too far south. And then you've got Seoul and all the Northeast Asian markets are kind of on the edge a little bit. But you can take a five-hour flight here from KL and reach half the world's population. No coincidence that you have AirAsia there next door <laughs> in KL. Yeah, right. But that makes sense, doesn't it? Like, it worked for them yeah. because geographically yeah. they had that advantage. Where you are right now, you can service markets more effectively than being based anywhere else in the world. I think, for example, if you're based out of San Francisco, a five-hour flight will get you a fifth of the population that you can reach. Mm-hmm. Where does your market lie for you? Are you just focused on Southeast Asia or have you got eyes on elsewhere? We're very, very focused on Southeast Asia. Reason being that for, for us is that when we first, when we were in our beginnings of expanding our market footprint, to Southeast Asia, it wasn't only Kuala Lumpur that we just came in, incorporated a company and that's it, right? We went, we, we took about three to four months. I remember uh, me telling my co-founders and say, hey, look, let's slow down on the whole idea of you know, just starting a company, right? Let's go travel. And this whole traveling thing, uh, to be honest, Graham, I, I, it, was a really, it was a really an inspiration from you know, what, what you have went through yourself, right? So I told my, my co-founders, I said, let's go travel. <laughs> let's go travel Southeast Asia, right? So we went, tra- we took about three to four months. We went traveling to, to Bangkok, to Manila, to other parts of the province of Philippines, Vietnam, Cambodia, and of course, Kuala Lumpur and um, Singapore a little bit, right? Uh, it's easier to cover Singapore. Right? So when we get to these countries, to these markets in Southeast Asia, we realized that, that number one, Southeast Asia, although you look at it as one, right? ASEAN, but when you really study Southeast Asia in these markets uh, individually, they behave differently, right? It's not a one size fit all. And the challenges, yeah, the challenges that comes with it, right, that, that we've been, that we observe, it's, there are common grounds within the challenges. And I think it's uh, the Asian 
behavior, you know, the Asian behavior thing that, that really drive or that really uh, trigger what we saw as an opportunity. And that's where we saw that in, in Southeast Asian context alone, uh, we realized there was a huge market, a huge opportunity for digitalization. There's still a lot uh, of uh, people that is on manual traditional processes. And Graham, this is what's interesting, right? These manual processes, we learned along the way that these manual processes are like a system. You wow. know, to these guys, it's like a system, right? And and these are guys that have been in the industry for like 20, 30 years, 40 years. You know, we have a client which is 60 years in the industry. And these guys have built their, their own system of no manual and, and, and legacy, but, but they've built their own system based on learnings, right? Based on experience. So, so the opportunity really here was that they are now at a point where they know, you know, they know for a fact that it's at a point that they need to get to the next level through digital. But the big question was always how, you know, uh, when, how much, or rather the why. Why do we need to even do this, right? So, so the more, yeah. So the more we, we built this relationship um, across uh, this couple of Southeast Asian countries, the relationship with, with these logistics guys, these players, uh, the more we see that the motivation to transform is there. The motivation to really go get to the next level is there. Uh, it's just the how, the why, you know, somebody to give them that thought leadership and of course, the affordability of things, right? Yeah. So, so, so that was how typical warehouse manager in the Philippines be doing with their system? What was their analog system that they were running off? Pen and paper. <laughs> so there's, right. there's a lot of pen and paper. There's also a common challenge that we have observed of, uh, you know, how these companies, these, these traditional companies uses um, accounting softwares, right? To basically run their logistics processes, right? Their warehouse operations and all that. And they've come to a point because of the, the search and demand of the e-commerce, not only B2C fulfillment, but also B2B fulfillment as well, right? And how retail has, has uh, really changed because the, the retail side, on the retail side, is also being driven by the, by the e-commerce uh, demand, right? So now these uh, kind of services that they're providing has got to expand, has got to transform as well. Yeah, so, so that's, that's how uh, we see the challenges that is faced, not only in the Philippines, uh, warehouse manager in the Philippines, but uh, across, across the, the, the ASEAN market as well. So how would you take a warehouse manager like that who's been using pen and paper successfully, importantly, for the last 20 years, selling his durian or whatever it may be internationally? It works, but he knows somehow he's got to get it to the next level to keep up with demand. And maybe there are challenges due to COVID with the existing supply chain. Where do you start with somebody like that? I imagine that they're not easy work. There's a lot of unlearning that needs to be done here. How do you go in? Because you can easily sell them the digital technology and then they are completely turned off. How does yeah. it work? So I'll be honest to share with you that I'm still really trying to write that book of how does it work. So I might not have a, a real answer to that yet. But what I do learn is also that you can't sell softwares to these guys. You know, I, I know we're like this whole technology startup thing, you know, we, we always want to say that we have the coolest software that can help you do all these automated workflows, blah, blah, blah. But really, you can't, what I really learned is that I can't go in there and say, hi, Mr. Lim or Gore or Mr. Horse Oriento, 
this is my software and let me tell you about this cloud supply chain platform, right? Because cloud supply chain platform, there's four words and there's four very, uh, you know, words that, that is going to overwhelm them right then and then because there's, there's going to be four questions out of that one line, right? What is, what is the cloud? Okay, maybe supply chain, they understand, but what do you mean by a platform? Is this a software? Is it in a computer? So, so you really don't want to go in there and, and just from the word get go, tell them that it's a software and it's a software they need to use, right? So I learned over time, rather we learned over time that it's no point selling a software. So over the last one year plus, especially during the COVID where it forces us now to say, so selling a software is challenging. Now you got to sell a software through a Zoom call to a Chinaman, right? Uh, <laughs> that ups the challenge. So one of the things that I've been really doing uh, all this while right now is, you know, I walk into a sales meeting with these guys or a pitch with these guys, uh, first meeting. I don't even bother taking out my laptop right now. You know, sometimes, you know, it's a technology company, right? So you want to go into the meeting, you take out a laptop, put in the adapter to the HDMI and then flash it and then you start doing all your product live demo. That's what the book teaches you, right? But I think what I really learned is that first I went in, I take a marker pen, I look for a whiteboard and I say, hey, look, let's talk about your problems, right? So let's start to draw. And you'll you be surprised, right? That a lot of times these guys do not, even though they are 30 years or 40 years in the industry, running the same logistics business day in and day out, but they have not actually for once draw up their operational flow where are the gaps and what is the problems? So it's like, you know, define problem definition, right? They know they have a problem. They know they are losing clients. They know they are having the whole headache of their inventory fluctuations every day. Their, their inventory count cannot tally. But they have not yet at one point draw up the whole flow and, and identify where the gaps are. So, so here comes this young... So when I was in Korea, I was the Southeast Asian guy, right? So now we're back in Southeast Asia. I'm the Korean kid. So this is Korean kid, Korean based company come in and take a marker pen and say, okay, look where. And the more I do this, I realize the picture that I draw in everybody's whiteboard is the same. It's like the warehouse, the supply coming in. How many trucks do you have? Where is your, re where, what is your sales channel? Retail outlets. How many omni channels are you doing? Are you in Lazada, Shopee, Amazon, Q10? And how are you managing the orders at the end of the day, right? So the more I do, I, I realize it's actually the same, it's the same picture. It's just, so there's a common, there's a common problem, right? Uh, hence drive the thinking of if I solve one fellow's problem, I probably solve hundreds out there, right? So this is where you got to then, and I come to learn that this approach builds the trust very quickly with these warehouse guys, these warehouse uh, business owners, right? These logistics players. It builds the trust because finally someone is drawing up this whole picture that I've been looking at, but now it's so clear. So it's an SE's picture. So then for us to now go in and say, hey, this is your could be your to be. It's like you're getting a permission and their blessings to now telling them, this is your SE's, right? This is your problem, right? Very clear, right? Okay. Now this is your to be. And now they are in fact, most of the time when I'm in this kind of meeting, halfway through, uh, at, at the tail end of the SEs, they are the ones that's going to start. So tell me what's your 2B. And when, when it's 2B, never make the mistake of, here's my software. <laughs> no, no, no. You leave the software alone, right? So it's again, now your 2B operations first. And then the software comes in as a tool to help 
that to be done. Yeah. So so we kind of yeah. That's that's it's how a great I lesson think. In, yeah, yeah, I think it's important. Like anybody, whether you're selling logistics software or any kind of technology solution, really, you're selling the benefit. You're selling them what this could create or build for them what the outcome yeah, yeah. could build and mm. software just happens to be a tool to get there That's it's right. not the actual solution in itself yeah and we yeah. in the technology industry being stuck in these echo chambers tend to reference each other and think that it's about software but this guy the warehouse manager he doesn't care yeah. he just wants you to solve the problem that he's got right and uh, yeah. how do you find their adoption of technology once they're in, in theory, once they're bought into the idea, is it pretty straightforward from there for these guys? So I remember so clearly three years ago when we decided to come into Southeast Asia uh, market. A lot of people, the, the one very common thing that I've been hearing is, you know what, Bernard, you, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time trying to sell software to a a hundred year old market here. You know what I mean? It's logistics, right? And logistics comes with culture and history. You know, it's, it's not a market like e-commerce marketplaces. <laughs> it's suddenly, suddenly that's uh, 10 years ago, that's Lazada, right? It's not. It's history. It's culture. It's ownership, right? Of this segment of market. So, so I've been hearing a lot of this. And then the more we went out there and the more I realized that there's actually very little convincing that you need to do to the other guy or to this segment, to this market segment, right? There's actually very little convincing that you need to do to tell him, hey, Mr. So-and-so, I think you need to, and this is the reason, five reasons why you need to digitalize. He knows. He knows he needs to get there. He knows he's already at that point. You know, he knows he's already at that point like, shit, right? This Excel spreadsheet is not going to work anymore. You know, this pen and paper is good. But give example, right? I have a client uh, and an experience with a client where the owner is a 68-year-old man. And if you ask anybody in the industry, he knows the inventory at the top of his, you know, of his head, right? He knows what goes out, what comes in, what is damaged <laughs> and all that. Now, his challenge now is he needs to retire and the next generation is going to take over, right? He can't possibly be asking his next generation to hold a piece of paper and pen and stand at the door. He can't. Because if he does that, if, if he do that, his next, there's no next generation. <laughs> Nobody's going to do that. So you see, it drives him. It comes in many, many different forms and uh, ways. It drives him. It's it a very Asian him. thing as well, isn't it? The family yeah, business. Asian, correct. Yeah, it's a very Asian thing. Second generation. Yes. yes. And don't imagine, don't try to imagine as a very state of the art warehouse, you know, aircon mm. and, and, and a nice uh, smooth flooring is not, right? It's, there's millions of goods in there. These guys are, these guys turnover is like 100 million annually, right? So he knows. So what I'm saying is that there's so little convincing that needs to be done. I, I, I learned to tell the other party to say, hey, you need to digitalize. No, it's not. But what matters now is to basically, and in his mind is, I think his challenge is really what I learned is, who can I trust? to bring me through this, or, you know, they say crossing this, uh, crossing this river to the next point. Who can I trust so that, you know, along the way, he won't drown me by charging me expensive fees? <laughs> or this whole, oh, suddenly they say cloud. Last time was, just as I'm trying to learn and understand what on-prem server means, 
Now this guy is talking cloud. What is this cloud thing, right? Uh, so so you got to really ha- be able to build that trust with these guys, you know? And then it, it's all operational already from there. Yeah. Mm. Fantastic. It's been a great look into the world of not only selling technology, but Asia, Southeast Asia in particular, and the opportunity yeah. there. Bernard, thanks so much for sharing some insights into your story and your market today. Where can people find out more about you, your company? We are at hatio.asia. You can just log on to our website, hatio.asia. Yeah, we've, we're very, very, we, we respond. We have a three minutes response time. So if you need to talk to us, I'll be really, really more than happy to engage with you guys there. Yeah, test it out. Mm. Excellent. Bernard, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me here on the show. You've been listening to the XL Podcast with me, Graham Brown. To subscribe and discover more conversations, go to www.xlpodcast.org.